the master tavern keepers in history of the old world. Here, Heinrich, let me fill your tankard before you begin again. This storytelling malarkey is thirsty work. Yeah, yeah, it most certainly is. Many thanks, my dear friend. So you'd got us to the point where Marco and his crew had been gifted a banquet of fruit, dried insects, and liquor from the skinks that had appeared from the jungle. And the crews of the three ships had enjoyed a day of merrymaking and mirth. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, before we continue with the tale, I wish to relate a conversation that happened between Marco and my grandpapa on that drunken day. It will only have a real bearing on the end of this tale, but I'll introduce it now as this was the point where my grandpapa learnt of it too. It pertains to Marco's patron and my grandpapa's former employer, the mercenary condottieri Prosper Cologne. Marco and my grandpapa were carousing together on Marco's ship, La Mermidia, which, and I may as well relate this here too, had received a nickname during the crossing. It was now more commonly referred to as La Pintolaga, due to the strange mottling colour of the barnacles on its hull. At least, that is what uh, Marco believed. I am sure it had nothing to do with the very strange drink which he would habitually partake in that happened to have a very similar name. The other two ships, too, had earned themselves nicknames, as is often the case with sailors and their boats. Giovanni's vessel, La Serene, had earned the nickname Nino, after its itinerant captain. I believe Giovanni is commonly shortened to Nino in Italian. Yes, si. yes. Mm -hmm. And La Mercopia, the ship that was under the stern gaze of my grandpapa, had earned the nickname Bimbo, <laughs> which in Italian means a uh, young male child, I believe. <laughs> Mm, mm. See, si, si. ah, well, my grandpapa was a uh, rather baby-faced in his use, uh, by all accounts, and also was not the tallest. So I guess that explains that. I am not aware of any other meanings. Shh, everyone. I am sure there are no other meanings for the word Heinrich. Please think no more on it. Zoviso, if you recall, Marco had gotten his ships and their crews from the mercenary lord condottieri Prosper Cologne, who was working in Remas. Now, whilst under the influence of the alcoholic drinks provided by the skinks, Marco revealed that he had uncovered that 
Prosper Cologne was not actually the Condottieri's real name. It was a pseudonym that he had assumed upon becoming a prominent lord of a company of dogs of war in order to hide his actual identity from his enemies back in the Principality of Trantio. His real name was Orlando Altavilla. What? A member of the Altavilla family. I thought they had all been put to the sword when the Republic was declared. Yeah, yeah, and that is what Cologne, or should I say Orlando, wanted his rivals back in the turbulent principality to believe. Now, unfortunately, I have to admit I am uh, not particularly au fait with the history of Trantio and the events that led to the exile of the uh, prince. But, uh, Master Tavernkeeper, could you perhaps uh, fill in some of the blanks for us as our uh, resident historian? Ah, why, yes, of course. Well, as you so very aptly described it, the turbulent Principality of Trantio is a relatively new player in the ongoing rivalries over there in the eastern side of the country. Although, really, it was not until Marco Colombo became its prince that it became a true force to be reckoned with. However, as we will no doubt be coming to that in your own tale, Heinrich, I shall limit the scope of my description to events prior to this. Trantio is oft described as an upstart Tyrian city, much like its smaller neighbour, Pavona, the city of a thousand bridges, although there is not a drop of water beneath any of them. Anyway, a few centuries ago, Trantio was not considered very powerful at all, as it was really a backwater, situated as it was both far inland and in no way being a hub of much significant trade. Its main export was the rock it quarried. The Apuccini Mountains to the east there are the source of its main produce, white marble, which the city exports across the old world even as far north as Kislev. Vast quantities of marble were, and still are, brought down from the Apuccini mountain quarries. But, fortunately for the city, the most sought-after stone is found on their doorstep in the nearby Tarantine Hills, just to the south and southeast of the city. It is this exotic, pink-veined Tarantine for which the city garnered much of its noteworthiness. The people of Trantio have always been considered a tough and hardy folk, as the Apuccini Mountains, affectionately known as the Apuccinis by the locals, which demarcate the lands of eastern Tyria and those of the border princes, are very dangerous. Within the mountain range you can find many enclaves of bandits, caves full of night goblins, trolls and the like. The line between the city and the mountains are thickly wooded, and these too contain their own dangers, such as wild beasts and beastmen. Trantio's other great claim to fame is that it's one of the cities that have overthrown their merchant prince and become a republic. The royal household that they overthrew were the Alta Villas. The Alta Villas were once a noble Bretonian family known as the Orteville, and they hailed from the old region of Glamboriel, which is now part of Carcassonne. Back in the year 974, the region of Glamboriel was utterly 
destroyed by the orcs during their infamous invasions of the land of the Bretoni. The Ordeville family managed to escape the massacres of that time and fled over the Arana mountains and into Miragliano. Over the course of the next 150 years, the survivors of the family slowly moved south, establishing themselves as minor chivalric nobility, and they changed their surname to the more Tylean-sounding Alta Villa. They carved out a niche for themselves within the aristocracy of the fledgling city of Trantio, before eventually rising to become the city's first family through a series of marriages, duels, and a bit of good luck. By 1130, one of their members, Roger Altavilla, became the merchant prince of Trantio, and his male line descendants ruled until 1427. The reason for the end to their rule can be linked directly back to the infamous tournament of Ravola that took place in neighbouring Ragliano two years previous to their dethronement. Do you all know this story? It's fairly well known here in Tylea. Ah, no, I do not. Please, tell me more. Well, I can do better than that. I'll give you a quick rendition of the contemporaneous poem, The Flower of Ravola. The Flower of Ravola. An arrogant Bretonian duke and his barons from the land of Carcassonne once rode through the Arana Mountains, chess swelled by the jousts they had won. To conference did these boastful knights gallop with blades held firm in their hands to meet with the Prince of Miragliano in the hope of possessing his land. The Duke brought his heralds and knights, but it was with mercenaries that the Prince came, and for days did they feast and banquet, until at last it became time to talk plain. With wine in his belly stood the Baron de Boer, proclaiming their knights were the best, and if the Prince wished to avoid a costly war, he should acquiesce to their behest. For they desired the fine town of Ravola, wherein the two parties exchanged words. But at this Etta the Fierce stood up and refuted all he had heard. He claimed his knights could better all comers. His venators were well known for their skill. But at this the Duke heartily guffawed. If defeated, then leave Tylea they will. So a tournament took place the next day, and on each side were arrayed seven knights. All agreed to the rules of the Bretonians. No enchanted weapons were to be used in the fight. The pavilion was filled with fine ladies. From Ravola and Miragliano they had come. The knights of Bretonia asked for their favours, and to each it was granted, bar none. So the jousting then began in earnest. The first Bretonian knight faced his foe. The knights hurtled towards each other's lance lowered, but it was the Bretonian who was unseated first blow. The jousting continued throughout the day, but with always the exact same outcome. Each time a Talian faced a Bretonian, it was the Bretonian who landed with a bump. So it was victory for the flower of Ravola, but a Bretonian herald did inspect their lances. 
In anger, he shouted, These are too long, Eto replied. Why, what better way to increase our chances? For the rules had only forbidden enchanted weapons, and said nothing about weight, girth, and length. And the Tyleans in the pavilion fell about laughing, having bested the knights with cunning, not strength. The poem soon spread around the peninsula, and was a popular rendition for the bards of the time. And a popular refrain at the time was, The longer your lance, the better your chance. Yeah, yeah, I do like a good long lance myself. Oh, uh, anyway, so moving swiftly on, um, yes. The poem soon travelled to neighbouring Trantio, and was used to poke fun at the ruling family, as no secret had been made of their Bretonian heritage. This quickly came to the attention of the rival mercantile patriarchs of the city, and, in their belittlement of the Bretonians in the poem, they saw something they could use to foment unrest in the city and seize power for themselves. They used their agents to spread rumour and gossip about the Alta Villas over the next two years and stir up dissatisfaction with their governance. The naysayers began to provoke the poor and disadvantaged to rise up against the perceived tyranny of the elites, but managed to channel this anger solely against the Alta Villas, using them as their scapegoats for the plethora of crimes perpetrated by the elites. Eventually, riots broke out and quickly devolved into a full-scale revolution with the plotters coming to the fore to lead the insurrection. Rioters dragged the prominent members of the Alta Villas out into the streets for public execution. Although most never made it to the executioner's block and were lynched in the street. The mob came for the merchant prince too and beat him to death in front of his wife with a standard bearing the flag of Trantio before hurling her from the balcony of their palace. The rich merchants of the city then assumed control and began to transform the city into a dog-eat-dog den for devious merchants and traders, as its ruling elites strayed far from their declared intentions and quickly became decadent and self-serving. The merchant princes of the neighbouring city of Maragliano and the Council of Fifty of the Republic of Remus were rightly fearful of this turn of events. However, in the next 50 years, all attempts to capture the city by the armies from Remas and Miragliano were always thwarted by the mercenary regiments marching on the Republic, suddenly changing sides at the right moment. Trantio duly became notorious for playing off their rivals against each other in order to keep its independence. So, I think that brings us up to the point we were at in the voyage of Marco Colombo, Heinrich. I think you've kept us on tenterhooks long enough. What had Marco uncovered about the former rulers of Trantio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Marco told my grandpapa that the merchant prince of Trantio at the time of the declaration of the Republic, a man called Aurelio Altavilla, had managed to smuggle his infant son Orlando out of the city before the bloodthirsty plebeians came for his life. The prince's retainers smuggled the boy into exile and reared him to manhood in the city of Remas. 
They instructed him on all he had lost and instilled within him a thirst for revenge. He joined one of the mercenary companies of the city and assumed the name Prosper Cologne, honoring his Bretonian heritage, and then he joined a deadly group of mercenary duelists known as Vespero's Vendetta before leaving to start his own mercenary regiment and eventually being counted as one of the most powerful condottieri's in the country. It was at this time that Marco came to see him, and with the help of my grandpapa, who was working for the condottieri at the time, convinced him to finance Colombo's expedition and provide three ships and their crews. The price had been very steep, though, and my grandpapa was staggered that Colombo agreed to it at the time. But as Marco and my grandpapa were drinking off the coast of Lustria, Marco revealed the secret private negotiations he had pursued with Orlando after my grandpapa had left the meeting. Marco had done his research and uncovered the truth that Prosper Cologne was in fact Orlando Altavilla, the exiled prince of Trantio. He revealed to Orlando that the emir of Sartosa, Abd al-Wazak, had once promised Marco something that could unlock the doors to Trantio. This was, in point of fact, a scroll, and upon the scroll there was a map. This was the key that would unlock a secret set of tunnels that went under the city walls of Trantio. Marco renegotiated the deal. And rather than the extortionate rate of interest he had initially agreed to, in exchange for the three boats and their crews, he would give Orlando the scroll containing the map, and also a much more modest amount of treasures he discovered whilst he would be in uh, Lustria. The condottieri agreed, and Marco made for Sartosa to retrieve the items he desired. It was these that he received from the emir, Abd al-Vazak, whilst on board his pleasure barge, in exchange for Vazak's family heirloom, the uh, ring, if you recall. And so, with having unburdened himself, Marco and my grandpapa's conversation moved to more mundane subjects. Ah, I see. Well, that uh, preemptively answers a couple of questions I was going to ask about Marco's return to Tylea. Ah, excellent, excellent. Well, with this bit of uh, exposition out of the way, I think it is time we turned our attention to the events of the following day. For it is here that the adventure really begins.